even apart from the threat of populism and the ugly racial animosity that this is fueled, it would be a really good kind of progressive economic idea to try to at least stop more people from falling behind and to the extent we can bring up the left behind, uh, bring them along. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. Today, in lieu of my usual spiel about something in the news, I'm really excited to share something more personal. I have a book coming out, The People vs. Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to save it. It's influenced by many of the conversations I've had on the podcast. It's my attempt to give a really broad view of what has led to the rise of populism and how it is that all of us can make a contribution to saving liberal democracy in this very, very perilous moment. It's my third book, and honestly, it's the first time that I'm super, super excited for people to read it. So please head to Amazon or to your more worthy local bookseller and get a copy of a book. Please tell people about it and let me know if you want me to help promote it in some kind of way. I will also be doing a big book tour in March and April. I'll tell you more about that in coming weeks on the podcast. But if you're in Boston, New York, Washington, D.C., Seattle, L.A., San Francisco, Salt Lake City, Chicago, Toronto, there's a good chance that you can come and see me talk about the book live in the coming months. But now I'm really excited for the conversation I just had with Martin Sandbu. Martin Sandbu is both an economist and an ethicist, a philosopher of sorts by training, has done stints in academia at the Wharton School at Harvard, at Oxford, and is now one of the senior economics writers at VFT. He used to be the economics leader writer and now writes for wonderful freelance column. And he has this great panoptic view of political economy and the ways in which it intersects with our politics in continental Europe, in the United States, and a bunch of other places. It was a really great, wide-ranging conversation, and I hope you'll enjoy it. Welcome, Martin. Thank you. Listen, so one of the things that I've been trying to think through for the past weeks is that we've obviously had a tremendous rise of inequality, not necessarily globally, as we discussed in the podcast with Branko Milanovic a couple of episodes back, but certainly within most countries. And I'm trying to understand, you know, to what degree is that caused by political developments? To what degree is that caused by a tax regime that's very favorable to the rich and to capital earnings and so on? And to what degree is it actually causes that go beyond politics in a strict sense, um, the arrival of globalization, potentially technological changes that make it easier for the winners to take all and so on. And so since you've been thinking about those kinds of topics a lot, I was keen to get your sense on that. Yeah, I think maybe we should kind of set out a couple of preliminary facts. So one is, as you say, globally, inequality has on the whole improved, as in decreased, because poorer countries have got richer, thanks to globalization, which we'll get to. But there's sort of an important point to know, which is that developing countries on the whole haven't had a backlash against globalization, right? And because they've benefited hugely from it, and we should all celebrate that. But there has been an increase in inequality within countries, in most countries. 
And I think that's the politically salient type of inequality, right? So even if the world has got better in a certain sense, in terms of global justice, it probably has, the politically salient kind of inequality, because politics remains largely national, you've had a you know, legitimate feeling among people within nation states that things haven't worked out for them. There's been a loss of solidarity, and I think that's legitimate, right? There are truly people who are left behind in a pretty material economic sense. Now, that's one preliminary fact, the global versus national difference. The other preliminary fact is that if you look at the generational perspective, let's say about 1980 till today, it's true that inequality has been on the rise pretty much everywhere. A lot of that happened in the 80s, early 90s. In some places, it's continued to rise. In other places, it's sort of stabilized, but at a higher level in the mid-90s. And so the really interesting contrast so that I wanted to talk about. So which are the places yeah. where it's really risen in the 80s and 90s and then stabilized? Which of the places where inequality is continuing to rise? So among rich countries... It's Europe, roughly Europe. You see inequality rising with the liberalization, economic liberalization that happened everywhere in the 80s, sort of into the mid-90s. And since then, on a lot of different measures, inequalities higher than it was 10, 15 years earlier, but it hasn't really changed that much in the last 20 years. Now, it's still felt politically salient. As I said, it's important. But it's just important to remember that it kind of stopped increasing. In the US, it continued to increase, right? We can talk about other parts of the world. Latin America, the most unequal continent in the world, things have got sort of marginally better in those 20 years. So certainly not increased, maybe decreased a little bit. China, Russia, huge increases. You know, in China, they globalized Russia. There was a complete sort of change in governance that some people benefited hugely from. Anyway, so, so there are sort of different country stories to tell here. But I think what we need to draw from this is that among similar-ish countries, sort of Western rich countries, you had very different developments in Europe from the mid-90s and in the US from the mid-90s. Going back to John Stuart Mill's law of difference and similarity, right? I mean, ideally, you would want to look at a case where one of the factors is really present and the other isn't. So the fact that inequality has continued to rise in the United States, but it hasn't continued to rise in much of Europe for the last 15 years, would be dispositive if there was only a change in the laws, but not a change in sort of the stage of technology and so on, right? But obviously, when you look at the United States, it's both a place where, as with the recent tax reform, the laws are most, frankly, rigged in favor of the rich. But it's also a place that's ahead technologically and where, for example, the effects of the rise of Silicon Valley and the digital economy felt much more strongly than they are in Europe. So it's not clear to me how easily that distinction helps us to make sense of what's really driving the inequality. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. It's really hard. I can kind of off the top of my head think of four, four important dimensions. One is globalization, the change in economic structure because of that. The other is technological change, the change in economic structure because of that. The third is just the progressiveness of the tax system. How much does a tax system try to even out inequalities. And a fourth thing is, how does the policy and institutional arrangement affect the pre, the, the market distribution of, you know, the market inequality, right? Because policies are different and can affect, before you get to any redistribution, how unequal things are in terms of what people earn in the market. Those are four dimensions, and there are differences on all counts between countries. But just let's take one thing, because globalization is the one that's been getting the blame. Globalization is pretty similar in Europe and the US. So I think we can, as a first sort of stab at this, say that 
that difference can't be attributed to globalization unless you say that there was something in the policy environment that sort of compensated for the bad effect of globalization in Europe, but not in the US. Right, or maybe an interaction effect of globalization yes. yeah, has exactly. certain kinds of results exactly. when you also have bad tax policy. But right? you know, those were but, my immediate four dimensions. You might have some to add. I don't know. See. There are lots of them, right? <laughs> I, I might. I mean, you know, the, the nice thing about distinctions is that you can always make more of them. But let's start with a fourth one of those, because I think that people will have an instinctive sense of the effects of globalization, but will have an instinctive sense of what it means to have a tax code that's more or less redistributive. But the idea that you're talking about is some political scientists and economists and philosophers have been calling pre-distribution over the past decade. Ugly word, um, but important concept. Yeah, it's really interesting, right? That actually the biggest driver of inequality may not be what you do in the tax code. It may not be how open your country is to trade. It may be the kind of way in which institutions are set up to either train people well and have an inclusive economy or not. So what does that look like and what kind of policy implications might flow from it? I think that's really important to make this distinction because, in fact, if you look at what I call the third dimension, the sort of straight progressive taxation issue, tax systems have got less progressive pretty much everywhere since the 80s in Europe too, you know, more extremely in the US, but still. And yet inequality hasn't risen much in the last 20 years. So it clearly is that. And, and it was that before too, because everyone admires the Scandinavian egalitarianism, right? people who care about equality admire it. But it's not the progressiveness of the tax system that's uh, striking, it's the equality of market labor earnings, not capital earnings, labor earnings. Capital earnings, capital income, they look pretty similar to other countries, but the labor markets in Scandinavia are very egalitarian and, and remain so. So when you're thinking about pre-distribution, what makes it the case that just the kinds of salaries that companies pay their workers have a much smaller differential in Sweden and Norway, where, where, where you grew up partially, and many other places than we do in the United States? What well, drives? I think the most obvious thing must be the distribution of power, right? That if workers have some bargaining power, then the outcomes will be more favorable to them, if power is more equally distributed, then probably material rewards will also be more equally distributed. That at least fits if you look around different countries where it is easier for lower paid workers to demand more, they tend to get more. So in a sort of obvious sense, except that doesn't get us very far in terms of what can be done about this. But just to tell the Scandinavian story, it was one in which first unions have always been strong and remain strong, and where there's been a social consensus around a collaborative model where employers' organizations and employees' organizations, unions, try to find you know, a sort of compromise where the state's role is to facilitate that sort of compromise and everyone kind of understands this tripartite division of responsibilities. Now, one speculative thought is that this is in part because of the pressures of globalization. So all the Scandinavian and Nordic countries are small countries, open countries, very much exposed to globalization, the sort of swings in the global economy. And one speculative thought is that it's precisely because they are open to globalization and therefore vulnerable, that as societies, they have sort of stuck together and say, you know, let's do this in a way where our conflicts internally don't make us all worse off because we are externally exposed, we need to survive in a big world, right? So that sounds very nice, right? I mean, the, oh, the it other way utopian, of utopian, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> I and mean, the other way of interpreting it is that they are quite small and homogeneous societies. 
and that as they are becoming less homogeneous, some of that social consensus may break up. And there's been some very interesting work in political science, it's highly controversial, that suggests that as um, the degree of ethnic diversity in a country increases, um, social support or popular support for the welfare state decreases. Yeah. But this actually gets back to the uh, the institutional sort of policy environment question we talked about, because the thing that I think ultimately separates groups, whether ethnic or you know defined in some way, is the extent to which they can participate in this sort of pretty egalitarian labor market. So skills, right? So if a particular group, let's say descendants of immigrants, are particularly ill-equipped in terms of skills, or you know maybe some sort of social adaptability, or racism, right? It could be that too, from taking part in this sort of system, then they will, on the one hand, be excluded; on the other hand, be seen as separate. It doesn't only affect, you know, let's say children of immigrants or immigrants themselves. You also have in these same societies, you have some problems with exclusions that are quite similar to the left behind in the U.S. or the U.K. Less extreme, and maybe not as large quantitatively. But Norway, for example, has a sort of worryingly high proportion of young men on disability benefits. Well, one of the striking things in recent political science research is the work on intergenerational mobility. And so, you know, briefly put, it used to be that political scientists had this really crude measure of mobility, where we basically looked what percentage of your income is explained by your father's income. And that's a terrible measure, because if you imagine a family in which one generation is a banker, and then the son is a university professor, yeah. and then the grandson is a banker again. Yeah. Uh, obviously, what we want to say about it sociologically is that this is an elite family in three yeah. generations that, for whatever mix of personal preference and opportunity, ends up in quite different professions, but they're obviously at the top of society for a long time. Now, when you just look at it in economic terms, the professor makes a fraction of what the banker so does, so it looks while. like a story of extreme mobility. So there's been recent studies that actually go back a lot longer. They look at tax returns in Florence in the 14th century and, and find names. that the richest families in the 14th century are the richest families in right. Florence today. They look in Korea at families that have the surnames that you were given, I believe, in the 18th century if you were a civil servant. And they find that they are still at the top of society today. And they look at, I believe, a, a Swedish village where you have very good parish records. And they find that the ordinal ranking that you had 200 years ago is roughly the same when you do today. So obviously, 200 years ago, Sweden was a very poor country. Most people were quite poor. Now, a lot of these people are middle class and have comfortable lives. So there's obviously an important transformation there. But actually, the rank order of where you are in society hasn't changed all that much. The yeah. people who are richest in the 18th century are still richest now, much richer. And the people who are poorest are much more often than they were, but they're still actually perhaps some of those men on disability benefits. And that, to me, really challenges some of the things that I've been thinking about the economy. First of all, in that a country that has put as much effort into the welfare state and redistribution and education and all of those things as Sweden has, has actually only had such limited success in producing social mobility. And second, when you add to that, the thought that in a lot of European countries now, and it's less true in the United States, where actually immigrants tend to do quite well, but in a lot of European countries, you now have milieus of immigrants who came to a continent 40, 50 years ago without that many skills recruited in part for not having that many skills, were discriminated against and excluded from better jobs in all kinds of ways, had very poor educational opportunities. So there's a lot of thought from the receiving yeah. countries 
but as a result, now have a pretty clear hardened milieu that for many generations doesn't partake in education very strongly, that in some countries actually has in the third and fourth generation poor language skills. And when you then think about that in the context of those studies about Sweden and Korea and so on, I have to say, I start to think, well, perhaps we'll just have this sort of ethnically slightly distinct underclass in Europe for decades and decades to come. And that to me is one of the scarier thoughts about what the future of European societies looks like. I have a number of thoughts about mobility. I mean, before addressing your problem, maybe I can say why I have a problem with mobility as a measure or as a goal in the first place. So people often say, you know, people who uh, advocate focusing on mobility are sometimes people who sort of do it as a substitute for talking about equality, right? So if mobility is high, inequality isn't such a bad thing, is one type of argument. I rather think of it the other way around, that if inequality is low, mobility doesn't actually matter all that much. So, you know, there have been studies of how on some slightly contrived measures, Denmark has no more social mobility than the US. But social mobility between very narrowly, you know, very close rungs on the ladder, it doesn't really matter all that much. So depending on how unequal things are, you know, how close together the rungs of the ladder are in a particular society, maybe I wouldn't worry so much about what you worry about. But if inequality is increasing, if the rungs are getting further apart, yes, then I do care. So that's sort of one issue. Another issue that often is missed in the debate about mobility is that mobility goes both ways, right? And I remember having a conversation uh, in Chile a couple of years back with an economist who uh, was discussing with me the social transformations in the sort of 20, now almost 30 years since the end of the Pinochet regime. So Chile is one of the most unequal countries in the world. Still, it's got a bit better. It had sort of center-left centrist governments for most of the post-Pinochet period. But this economist was making a sociological observation, which was in a society that has traditionally been very immobile and very unequal, with absolutely families kind of carrying through elite families, remaining elite families, and very little contact between upper and lower layers of society. Once you start opening that up and changing it, making maybe things more meritocratic or at least more accessible, more opportunities for the poor, essentially. If you have upward mobility, you will also have downward mobility in a relative right, sense. Right. So you start, you will start seeing children of the privileged maybe not doing so well. Yeah, yeah. And that hurts. Right? That's really hard. And that immediately gets into how people who have power will use their power. So it's, you know, you immediately have to talk about how the elites will like to see downward mobility that is mathematically related to the upward mobility. So all and, that and, is and, sort of, you know, mobility is complex. Right. I mean, it's, it's right? one of the ways in which the post-war arrows were sort of golden age, right? Because you had such a structural transformation of the economy where you went from, you know, 80% of people being manual workers or yes. whatever to this large white-collar middle class to, you know, an explosion in the number of people who went to university and all of those kinds of things. So you could have upward mobility in without a, downward mobility. In an absolute sense, right? The, right. Yeah. 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 I mean, you, you could have a growth. sense of people joining the middle class, right? So it yes. wouldn't have changed the ordinal ranking in yes. Sweden. That's part of the story. But people had the feeling of, I'm the first in my family to go to university, right? My my dad had to do backbreaking labor, and here I am in an office being treated much better, 
right? So there was a sense that people had of, I have upward mobility without having to threaten anybody's position, just because the number of positions that were attractive in society expanded so much. Now, one answer to this is, let's keep expanding the number of positions in society that are really attractive. But I think there's sort of inherent limits to how long you can do that. Because actually, compared to 50 years ago, it's already true that a lot of people now have positions in society that are pretty attractive, right? It's similar to, you know, even if we double the amount of stuff we have over the next 50 years, we're not going to be able to give people the same experience of material progress as we did in the time period in which we went from people not having central heating at home, not having access to a doctor, not having antibiotics, probably dying at 55 years of age, to having a house and two cars and a doctor and a home entertainment system, right? But, so can I just pick up on, on yeah, that yeah. thing? Because you're quite right. The post-war period was kind of unique and that you had strong broad-based growth and a compression of inequality, which meant that everyone was getting better off and the worse off was getting better off faster. Everyone felt better, even if you may not have had much. You probably had some more than before, but you, maybe you didn't have all that much relative mobility. The achievements you talk about, you know, getting people out of poverty and deprivation, are amazing achievements, and we should celebrate them. But people still care about status, right? And in a sense, the, why all of this is political is because people worry about their social status. Quite rightly so, right? And as Democrats... We want to think that people need to have equal status in society. The, the, the fact is that even if everybody has central heating and piped water and a car, that's not enough because everyone has it to secure equal status. So that's where I would make a case for the importance of social mobility. I agree with your basic premise, and it's actually best put, and I was trying to quickly pull it up, but I wasn't able to find it. I think I quoted in my last book, The Age of Responsibility, this wonderful quote by John Stuart Mill who got this point exactly, and who said, look, even if you had a 100-yard dash, which was perfectly fair, in the sense that everybody starts at the same point and nobody has to carry a heavy backpack with you know, heavy things in it and so on, but the race were arranged by some Nero or other tyrant, and you know, the first person to cross the line gets a nice reward and the last five people are shot, we would find this to be abhorrent. So the fairness of a system doesn't mean that the outcomes are hugely unequal. That justifies it. I think that metaphor sums it up very nicely. So it Mill wrote that a long time ago. And so there are some reasons to care about equality of outcome, irrespective of the fairness of who gets which particular position in the resulting society. But I think it's worth thinking about why do we care about equality, right? And we care about equality to some degree because everybody needs access to a minimal range of goods to have a good, fulfilled life in a society in which some people don't have access to a doctor or some people are starving at night or don't know if they're going to have food tomorrow. We care just about them getting more stuff. But I think actually in our societies today, that expresses quite little of why we care about equality. And one of the big reasons why we care about equality is some form of equality of your word, status, right? We want to have a sense that you know, you can be born into whichever family in this society, and it doesn't mean that for the rest of your life you're somehow inferior to others in that society. And that's difficult to reconcile with a real lack of social mobility. If you have this ongoing lack of social mobility, even 
if you gave a perfectly decent life to the people at the bottom, which I think becomes politically harder and harder because it's easy to say, well, these people have been poor for generations and must be their fault. They're not really our fellow citizens. Who cares about them? But even if it didn't have those empirical knock-on effects, it would be sad to live in a society where if you're born to a certain you know, family, you might get universal basic income forever. You might get you know, a perfectly materially pleasant life. But whenever European society, people are going to think, oh, he's, one of, he's from one of those poor families. Yeah. So in that sense, I think the lack of social mobility we've seen over the last decades is quite a deep challenge to the ideal of an equal society. I, I agree with that. I mean, I do think, as I said before, that if you have more equality, it's less important, it's less urgent to have more relative mobility. That doesn't mean it's not important. But I want to add that if you have more in, more equality, it's probably also easier to have mobility because it's less painful for those at the top to shift down, right? It's, it's not so noticeable. Of course, you know, we know that humans are beings that care about, you know, we're narcissists of small differences. So any little difference you'll have will be a source of status difference. That's human nature. Uh, but I think it's very valuable to live in a society, including for those at the top, a society of equals, where anyone you see around you is someone who will behave as your equal in certain important ways. That's healthy for all of us. One thing that makes mobility difficult to achieve, we talk a lot about inequality of incomes. I want to talk about inequality of wealth. And you find, for example, in the Scandinavian societies that so many people think are the model, actually inequality of wealth is really, really, really quite, quite, you know, quite extreme. Not as much as the US, but you know, on some measures, Norway has more inequality of wealth than the UK does. That's probably partly an artifice of privatized pensions in the, in the UK, but even so. Now, wealth is quite different from income because it gives you this kind of uh, certainty and security, right? So if you're born into a family that has wealth, property, or you know, what financial wealth, whatever form of wealth it is, you have a sort of insurance right there. Even if you lose your income, you still have wealth to draw down. And there's something, you know, mentally and kind of morally different about distribution of wealth than distribution of income. So I think economists, but kind of political thinkers in general, in general, should start to pay a lot more attention to wealth than we have traditionally. Part of this has been a data problem. We've had data on the distribution of income for quite some time. It's only recently that we're starting to get data on the distribution of wealth. It's still poor information, partly because only a few countries in the world actually tax wealth directly. So you kind of have to infer and extrapolate and so on. Uh, but I really think it's something that is starting to get more attention and really should be much more in the core of our focus. I think there's a political question here as well. The left has been associated for a very long time with wanting to tax income more. And obviously, even though that's too simplistic, I can see why that has earned it a reputation of being against social mobility in certain ways and against achievement, right? You go and you work hard and you get a big pay raise, you know, a large chunk of that is going to be taken away and actually you're going to pay more on each additional dollar that you make than you did previously, right? Why, why is that fair, right? I mean, I think there's answers to that, but there are political problems to the high taxation of income that don't exist to the taxation of wealth. And one of the most radical transformations over the last 30, 40 years of the tax regimes in Europe and especially in the United States, is not that top income tax rates have come down, which they also have, but that it used to be that wealth was taxed in many places more heavily than income. 
And now income is taxed much more heavily than wealth. So especially in the United States, the rate you pay on capital returns is now much lower than the rate you pay on income. And that, you know, when you think about designing a tax system from first principles, seems utterly bizarre. Why, if I wake up every morning at 7 a.m. and commute into work and so on, should I pay more tax on the money that I make from that than somebody who already has money and sort of has put it into a low-cost index fund and is sitting around, right? This this seems like a bizarre thing. I, I agree with you. I think there's another way in which you could look at income taxes as an obstacle to mobility, which isn't sort of people going from middle class to trying to be richer, you know, those sorts of stories. But the people who are actually the ones who we care most about, I think, when we complain about lack of mobility, which is sort of the lower middle class people, they're just about managing, as Theresa May calls them. People who are trying to get from a life that's supported by Just about managing, by the way, is a decent term, completely ruined by the acronym for which it was actually invented. (laughs) The jams is horrible. But Um, it's it's a good concept. It's, It's that sort of feeling of things not quite going round. But I'm talking about the people who are in work, but with some benefit support, and the structure of pretty much every Western welfare state now, in effect, imposes much higher effective marginal tax rates on people sort of at the 20th, 30th percentile of the distribution, the just about managing, than people higher up. And that's because benefits are withdrawn as you get more income, but you're also taxed. So you have a tax rate of 20 or 25 or 30 percent if you add in social security taxes. But you also lose benefits, maybe you know 50 percent of your extra dollar or pound of earnings you lose in benefits, whatever the withdrawal rate is. But in most countries, you calculate these rates and effectively, people who are quite far down the income distribution face marginal income taxes of 70, 80%. And sometimes, you know, perverse cases, more than 100%. So this is one reason to, you know, think about something like universal basic income as a substitute for current means-tested systems. That's a different discussion. You were drawing the difference between income taxes on labor income and capital income. And I agree with you, but I want to highlight a different distinction, which which is between taxes on income flows versus taxes on the stock of wealth, your fortune, if you like. So I would actually like to see less taxation on incomes, whether labor or capital, maybe cut it on labor first, but tax wealth regardless of how much income you make from it. Which, by the way, two million in the bank, so you owe a two million dollar or pound worth house. Let's impose a tax on that one percent, two percent. I mean, these are a few countries do this, not very strongly. Those small amounts, and then you know, use that money if you like to reduce taxes on income. So this is one of the big questions where the different dimensions. I'm not sure that I'm keeping track of them the right way. Start to intersect, right? And one of the big questions is: Will it be possible to effectively tax? the stock of wealth in an age of globalization. Now, the pessimistic answer is no, because it'll all go uh, to the Cayman Islands and you can't really reach it. I think I have a more optimistic answer there, which is to say that if you have a combination of better international cooperation for financial oversight, um, and even things that just national governments can do, much heavier criminal punishment for people who hide their money, much more willingness by states to pay for information so that if somebody in the Cayman Islands gets the hands on some of that information about your citizens, you're willing to pay them 10% of whatever tax money you're going to get back from this person. And by the way, much more resources into the uh, prosecution of financial criminals, just beefing up 
the divisions of your local police force uh, that deal with that kind of thing, I think you can really change it. Because at the moment, it's pretty low risk for people to hide money in that way. They're not really afraid of going to prison. But the incentives change radically if you see a couple of your friends who have done dodgy dealings like that actually go behind bars. And I think people quite quickly are going to get to a point where they say, hey, you know what? I mean, it's true that I can avoid paying this tax quite effectively by doing this, but it comes with a 5% chance of spending the next 10 years in prison. And is that really worth it? I completely agree. I think one thing is to enforce current laws much, much better, and it would pay for itself in terms of public finances. There's no doubt. Another issue is to try and just change policy towards these you know, tax havens. And, and it helps, I think, that we've, through a combination of leaks and kind of media attention and academic research attention, we're starting to know more what numbers we're talking about. I completely agree. We could know much more about this and we could enforce much more if there was a political will. I want to add another idea. Traditionally and, and currently, taxation is based on physical presence or residence. A few countries base taxation to some extent on citizenship. The US is one of very few. It seems to me that that should be the starting point for pretty much every tax system, including in wealth taxes, right? So it doesn't matter if your wealth is in the Cayman Islands. If you're a citizen of a democratic advanced country with a proper tax administration, your tax liability should still be based on your wealth, wherever it's based, and wherever you're based, as long as you keep citizenship and all the benefits that come with citizenship of a rich, advanced country. It would still be possible to, to evade that by resigning or giving up citizenship. But you know, as the US shows, you can go after people, you can uh, make it harder for them to then actually even come into the country or generally benefit from the public goods that a government provides. So, you know, if you wanted to be draconian about it, you say, well, as long as you are a citizen of our country, you are liable for tax, you have to report all your wealth wherever it is. We tax it. Of course, you need to offset against taxes actually paid elsewhere. You need some way of managing the interface for somebody who lives and pays taxes in different countries. Fair enough. But somebody who doesn't actually pay taxes anywhere, you say, well, you owe them to us because you're our citizen. That means we have certain rights. And if you want to give up citizenship, you won't be able to come home. So I, I agree entirely. And to prove a point, ah. um, uh, and I need to start plugging my own book here sometimes Please on my do. podcast, The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. It's out very soon, and you can pre-order it on Amazon now. But just pulling up this page, the United States is the only developed country in the world that already taxes people according to citizenship rather than residence. An American citizen or permanent resident must pay taxes in the United States. Other countries should follow America's lead and end the preferential treatment of citizens who move to tax havens for part of a year to evade the obligation to pay their fair share. I promise that the rest of the book is less technical than that. But I agree entirely. And that would be easy to do, right? And I think you just have to say, look, if you want to give up citizenship, that's fine. But then you actually lose access to the country. And very few people want to do that, right? People are not nearly as ruthless as Theresa May would like to claim. So, you know, if and, you and can let's, give let's up... let's be clear that people make money not in tax havens. They make money in rich industrial societies. Absolutely. So if you made it a condition to be able to have economic activity in the countries where economic wealth is created, that you also have a proper tax liability in those countries, 
then you will basically see a lot of progress. So, so I agree with that. I think it's even non-economic. Even the non-economic stuff is enough, right? You still want to be able to send your kid to yeah, exactly. Harvard or to Oxbridge. Yes. You still want to be able to go to your parents' funeral, yes. right? I mean, there are deep reasons why people who grew up and were born in a country might be willing to spend 183 days on the beach in the Cayman Islands, but they obviously want to be able to go back yes. and have access yeah. to their own territory. Yeah. And if you say, that's fine, spend... 250 days in the Cayman Islands, if you like, but you're still going to have to pay tax here. And by the way, if you move to France, which is a more high-tax country, then obviously we're going to count all of the taxes you have to pay there against the taxes exactly. you would have to pay here. Exactly. And we don't charge you an additional cent. That's fine because you are paying your tax obligations to a country, right? Yeah. But you need to pay a minimum amount and we're going to enforce that. So I agree that that's very easy to do because the most undervalued territory of a state is the one that has always traditionally defined it, which is its territory. And that goes very far with individuals. With corporations, it's a little bit more complicated. So I think in the end, there's an analog there. But for all kinds of reasons to do both with the fungibility of international capital and with existing agreements like the WTO, I think it's a bit more complicated. But let me make the case and you can tell me how, to what degree you think that works. To what degree can we say the same principle should apply to companies. We should also tax them on a territorial basis. So Apple can put the nominal headquarters in Dublin rather than London because they pay a lot less tax there at the moment. But in the end, they still have to be able to access UK territory to sell the iPhone. Even Google, which has less need for physical presence, wants to be able to sell ads to UK-based companies with UK-based IP addresses. Is it possible to reform the tax system in such a way, perhaps through more sales taxes or a different kind of structure, that companies that want access to, their to your territory have to pay a minimum amount of profits in tax in those territories? Or do you think it's impossible to make that analog? It's absolutely possible. I, d I don't want to use the word territorial because it has a kind of technical meaning in tax talk and economics that actually means something worse than that. But the system, in fact, exists. It's how corporation tax is managed across different US states, right? Uh, it's called formulary apportionment. The idea is that you forget about where a company is, you know, where is its postal address? That doesn't matter. You take an international company as a whole, you look at how much profit it makes, profit it makes on the whole in the world. And then you use a formula to allocate that profit to national tax bases, tax liabilities. And then the, the political question and, and also the moral question is how exactly do you find that? Sales is one thing, but you might think that where a lot of workers are, where it has most workers also has some claim on the value added. So, you know, you'd want some sort of weighted combination of sales workers, labor, maybe uh, capital investments, you know, where the actual factories are, where the capital has been put. This is certainly possible. And there are actually very good efforts happening on this in the European Union, which is probably where it will happen first if it happens. There's a lot of resistance. You have the usual suspects. Ireland is dead set against this, for example, because they benefit from the, from the current system. But it's something that there is a push for, and it will hopefully, the kind of attention paid to tax avoidance, base erosion is the technical point, the profit, the tax base moves will push this forward. I hope so. It's certainly possible. So here's a big question about that to me, which is how much of all of it? So I think actually just, just through this conversation, we've set out a program of reforms of the international tax system, which, which make a huge difference. But I think there is a tendency I see among a lot of economists 
to come up with the best solutions, which inevitably require a lot of international cooperation, and then say, well, we just have to push for that international cooperation. And I actually think that that's a sort of waiting for Godot type mm. situation. That if your reforms are ones in which you have to have a one big bang international agreement, it's just a way of putting off anything happening. So I've become convinced that, yes, you do need to work towards the goal of real international cooperation, but the only way to get there is to implement as much of this as possible at the nation-state basis. And the more nation-states have implemented something like that in any case, the easier it is for those nations to then cooperate internationally, and then over time it can become the international regime. So my question to you is, how much of this can you do at the nation-state basis? Perhaps a very small country like Liechtenstein may have problems doing it. A very large country like the United States perhaps can do most of those things because it has so much. But a country like France or Britain or, for that matter, let's say Brazil, how much of this can they do without waiting for international cooperation? Yes, size in this case, I think, is a proxy for how dependent you are on capital flows in and out, which related to size, but not, not only, right? So if your business is to be an international tax haven, and I think we can say that about Liechtenstein, then yeah, you know, you'll probably cut off the brush you're sitting on. But, you know, so be it. You are essentially skimming off the cream of uh, a tax liability that also belongs elsewhere. I think there's quite a lot that nation states could do unilaterally. Um, the most important steps I think you could take is first going back to the personal tax level. The corporation tax originally was a withholding tax. It was a way to ensure that the ultimate beneficiaries, the you know shareholders, basically, the individuals would pay the tax they owed and you get it at the corporate level because it's easier. That's how it started out. And it's become a tax in its own right. If you got the personal side right, it would be a little bit less urgent to think about the corporation tax. And in an ideal sort of economic model world, you might think if you could get the personal taxation completely right, you might not need a corporation tax at all. You'll just tax the individuals who ultimately, it's always real people who benefit. If you could get that right, you wouldn't need it. That's not never going to happen, but you can get some way by nation states unilaterally doing some of the stuff we were talking about, tying their individual tax burden to citizenship. So that's one step I would like to see them take. On the corporate tax, the step that you can take is, and this is happening now, France has proposed this, to put in a place a sales tax on total sales that will sort of mimic what taxes France would raise in a world where you had uh, what's called a common consolidated corporate tax base. Uh, they've, for now, basically emphasized tech companies, the digital economy, but there's no reason why they couldn't apply it to multinational corporations across the board. Now, this may at the moment be more of a threat. It may be a way to kickstart a process at the European level, but just take it on the merits. This is something an individual government, especially of a large country, can do and just say, well, if you sell stuff here, we will basically demand a tax on the total amount of your sales. We will set that rate to roughly correspond to what the right tax on profits would be, because it is better to tax profits than sales. Ultimately, profits are the thing you want to tax. And that's a sort of stopgap mimicking measure that would go some way towards the goal we both agree on. And may make that goal easier because then you can sort of shift into it when other countries... And, and then also gives corporations an incentive to actually agree to the new regime. Yes. Right? Because they would prefer tax on profits than a tax on sales. If you have a whole set of countries 
taxing them on their sales, they may become in favor of an international system that actually effectively taxes their profits. Whereas if the alternative is no taxation at all, or or very, very imperfect taxation, that's less likely. Before we wrap this up, bring this back a little bit more explicitly to populism, right? I mean, I think it's obvious how a lot of these conversations are related, that the rise of inequality, at least on one theory, is quite obviously related to the anger in the population, the kinds of reasons why people have gone for populists. And so thinking about what kind of policy can make people feel both that their economic future is going to be better and that the nation state still has control of its fate, that it isn't completely thrown around by the forces of globalization, is really important. Now, there is an important counter-argument against that, which has not just gained traction over the last months and the last year, but is starting to be dominant in many parts of sort of informed journalism and so on. And that's to say that, you know what, actually, economic anxiety has nothing at all to do with this. This is all about race. It's all about identity. It's all about racism, essentially. And anybody who still thinks about the economic drivers of this is just obfuscating what's really going on. Um, I know that you're skeptical of that line of argument. Why do you think that in explaining the rise of populism, the economic stuff matters? And, and, And by extension, that if we manage to do all of these things and capture more of corporate profits and actually give people better economic lives, that would in fact matter in countering the rise of populism. You're right. I am skeptical. I mean, from a theoretical point of view, it's possible for two things to be true at the same time, right? There could be two mechanisms, both cultural and racism and economic frustration. But more importantly, it just seems obvious that economic frustration can trigger or intensify underlying racism or other cultural animosity. But the other reason is that when people kind of try to look at the numbers and the, and the evidence, the arguments for saying that actually economics don't matter, it's, it's always very sort of poorly done just in terms of technical economic analysis. And there's, there's a lot of evidence uh, that shows that it's precisely the groups that have been economically, not necessarily those who are the worst off, but those who have either fallen the most short of expectations, if you look at historical experience, or who are have most reason to think that they are insecure, that their situation is precarious. So the sort of lower middle class or the native working class in many societies, people who, the type of people, maybe in smaller towns, people with not a lot of skills, not a lot of education, who at one point would have had kind of good opportunities open to them and don't anymore. That's not so much globalization as technical change. We can make things with many fewer hands now because machines and technology is better. And it's also the sort of lower middle class that may actually be doing all right, but that also comes from the same milieu, not high education, maybe ethnically homogenous small towns or rural areas who've done well and see themselves or people like them being in a very precarious situation with no opening to them anymore. So you see, you know, see this all kinds of ways. It's people in areas that have had the biggest rise in unemployment, for example, uh, or people who are the less mobile, who stayed close to their hometown, who tend to vote more for people like Trump or for Brexit. So I think the evidence is quite clear that economic anxiety, economic precariousness or fear of precariousness even, matters hugely. And that's why I think that some of these policies, they're good in their own right, but they probably also would help to combat the populist temptation. Yeah, the thing that strikes me about these analyses is that they 
usually take quite a sophisticated measure of racial animosity and a really simplistic measure of economics. So nobody says, well, look, if this is anything to do with race, then the areas with the highest number of immigrants should be voting for the populists. But you know what? New York didn't vote for Trump and London didn't vote for Brexit. So it's nothing to do with race. It's obvious to us that that's a bad argument. But when it comes to economics, people do run analyses where they're like, we're just going to throw people's income data into the mix. And if it turns out that it's not true the poorest voted for Trump in the highest numbers, then it's nothing to do with economics, right? And instead, you should look on the racial animosity side on proxies like, do you think Obama was born in Kenya? And it does turn out that people who think that Obama was born in Kenya were much more likely to vote for Trump. But in the same way, you should also look at economic indicators like how optimistic are you about your future? Do you think that there's going to be a lot of opportunities for people like you in your area and the country in the next 30 years? Or more objective measures of that, like change in GDP, like change in unemployment rates, like the number of jobs that might be subject to automation. When you look at those things, you see that they also play together. And so I absolutely agree with you that those two things go together, not just that it's two independent causes, but that people are much more likely to have their racial animosity activated when they feel anxious about the future. And and let's talk about this notion that's become a cliche now, the left behind. It's true. There is a group and it tends to be centered around the native working class, the white working class in many countries that have been left behind by economic change. It's not so much globalization, though that's part of it, you know, some factories moving and so on. But it's the fact that low-skilled work isn't actually that useful in the current economy because of technological change in manufacturing, but also because our economies on the whole are moving towards knowledge-intensive services. And also the geographic structure of the economy is changing. It's not small towns that have a big factory that drive the economy anymore. It's bigger cities where there's a lot of knowledge exchange, design, information technology, finance, all of these things. So along a lot of dimensions, the economic structural change we've seen has actually, on all those dimensions, affected the same group. Unskilled or lower skilled, often men, typically men, people who would have been industrial workers in an earlier age, in smaller towns rather than the cities, the people who can't move or not don't have the skills or the inclination to move to seek opportunities. So the people who are more open to change thrive more in the changing economy we're in, whereas those set in their ways don't benefit. That's a cultural thing, but it's something that interacts with economic changes so that along all the dimensions of change, actually, you see that the people who've been hit the worst by it are pretty much all the same group, and they are the ones we think of as the left behind. So, you know, even apart from the threat of populism and the ugly racial animosity that this is fueled, it would be a really good kind of progressive economic idea to try to at least stop more people from falling behind and to the extent we can bring up the left behind, uh, bring them along. We've only scratched the surface of all the things we could talk about, but this is as good a stopping point as any. We'll just have to have you back on. Thank you so much, Martin. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Put up a big sign praising the virtues of The Good Fight in your front yard. And finally... 
please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.